Good morning, Gold Avenue Church. Last week, Pastor Gina preached a wonderful opening message in our new series, Go and Make Disciples. And as she shared, we're going to be going on a journey as a congregation to grow as disciple makers. So whether you're able to join a discipleship group or you're journeying with us independently, for the rest of this series, we'll be using something called the Gospel Tool to help us each grow as disciple makers. The gospel tool tells the good news of the kingdom of God in story form. It's intended to help each of us grow in our understanding of the gospel story so that we can more effectively disciple others, helping them to know and trust and love and obey Jesus Christ. The gospel tool is divided into thought units or paragraphs, each of which is based on multiple scripture passages. So for the rest of this series, each sermon will be will correspond with one of the gospel tools numbered thought units. We won't be preaching from the gospel tool. We won't even try to cover all the themes that are in a particular gospel tool paragraph. Rather, most weeks we'll choose a scripture passage that's central to the theme of the next gospel tool thought unit. And we may read that week's thought unit for reference, but again, we'll be preaching from one or more texts of Scripture. So this week, I'll be preaching a message that introduces us to the big picture of the story of the gospel from Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. Before I read that and the gospel tool thought unit, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the psalmist wrote, The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so, Father God, today we acknowledge our need for your light, for you to give light and understanding. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you now open our minds and hearts to receive the fullness of what you desire to speak to us Through your word, anoint and empower my preaching and our hearing and responding to your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. So friends, I'll read the gospel tool thought unit first. It's um, paragraph, paragraph titled to the preamble and it reads the pain of human heartache and the sting of evil destruction and death which mark human history do not bear witness to God's loving design, but to a world that is not as it should be. Yet God is healing this world one person at a time through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. This is God's story. And then our scripture passage From Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings 
of our flesh or sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I first returned from China in the summer of 2005, I found it completely overwhelming to give a meaningful answer when people would ask me, how was China? Or how was your year in China? Immediately, I'd seize up internally. I didn't want to give a canned, it was great kind of answer. I wanted to accurately represent the year, but how could I draw it all together? There was... There was so much. There was intense culture shock, whole new diet, new toilets, new language, new shopping, new almost everything. There was beautiful Christian community, deeper than I'd ever experienced before with my fellow teachers. There was the experience of leading several students to Christ within several, within six weeks of landing and having multiple weekly Bible studies with them all year long. There was the gut-wrenching emptiness of a Buddhist funeral for a colleague's mother. There was the horror of seeing several motorcycle accident victims lying in the street alone with a crowd watching on because people feared implicating themselves by helping. There was the exceeding kindness of Mr. Mu, our foreign affairs official who took our team on outings at least once a month, introducing us to the beauty of the Sichuan countryside, the grandeur of the Tibetan mountains, and the quaint local tea houses of Chengdu. Or there was the student who took me on a hundred mile up a mountain and back weekend bike trip that nearly rubbed my rear end raw. He, by the way, came to Christ and was one of the ones I was meeting with. There were weekly power outages that saw my teammates and I huddled around candles to eat our supper and prepare our lessons. There was the innocence and friendliness and generosity of so many of my students who shared their hearts and their lives with me freely. And through all of this was woven daily interactions with, with beautiful people who did not have an eternal hope, who were spiritually hungry, and whom my heart grew to love deeply. My heart was so full when I returned from China. And so how could I meaningfully share what I'd experienced, what I'd learned, 
what I'd seen God doing, how I grew, it all felt so intimidating. This dilemma of how to share and what to share and how to meaningfully communicate faces each of us as we consider our readiness for explaining the gospel to others. Where do we start? What do we include? What exactly is the gospel that Jesus calls us to proclaim? In Mark 16, as Jesus commissions his followers, he says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Proclaim the good news, says Jesus. But he doesn't define the good news for them or for us. Some of you might be thinking, well, well, it's obvious, isn't it? We're to tell people about Jesus' death and resurrection and about the forgiveness of sins we can receive through faith in him. Yes, that's true. But is that the fullness of what Jesus means when he talks about the good news? Remember, Jesus was himself calling people to repent and believe the good news long before his death. Already in Mark 1.15 we read, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Good news about a kingdom of God coming that calls for repentance. Good news about a kingdom that Jesus again references in Matthew 24 when describing the days leading up to his return, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus' good news has to do with a kingdom that's coming into this world. And we understand that the cross, his death and resurrection, to be the center of that. But how do we put it all together? How do we meaningfully answer the question, what is the good news of the kingdom of God? How do we become meaningfully prepared to share and even teach this good news to others? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a great place to start as he reflects on the gospel in his letter to the young church in Ephesus. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, writes Paul. This world has a ruler. That ruler is a spirit. He rules over a kingdom, and he is at work in all those who are disobedient. Paul gives us a lot to unpack or work with here, but all the unpacking starts, I think, with the word disobedient. Because disobedience implies that there is someone who ought to be obeyed. In a sense, this is similar to the way that evil actually points us to good or to the author of all goodness. Because evil is never original. It's always a perversion of what's good and what is original. So the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, actually begins with the reminder that there is a creator and a created order and that both are very good. God is a king a loving yet sovereign Lord who rules 
by virtue of his being the one who brought forth all of reality and who therefore also demands full allegiance. Yet, there's rebellion in the kingdom, says Paul. We've all transgressed, or we've knowingly and intentionally broken God's good laws. Like when God says not to lie, or not to look at others lustfully, and we do it anyways. We've all transgressed, says Paul, and he also says we all sin. We miss the mark of God's holy and perfect goodness daily, even if unintentionally and unknowingly. Like when we speak in less than honoring ways, or we make mistakes that hurt others, or we fail to honor God by giving him proper thanks for all of his goodness. We fail to to demonstrate his true worth and value. We're bent towards sin so much, says Paul, we're actually dead in it. Dead to God. We don't know him. And we certainly didn't or don't want to please him. We all used to gratify the cravings of our sinful Nature, following its desires and its thoughts, says Paul. And he says, we're actually aided in this by the chief rebel, a spirit who is at work in and through all rebellion. This rebellion, says Paul, causes us to be objects of God's wrath precisely because God is loving and holy. He will not endure anything that is unholy. Rebellion must and will be punished and put down if God as a good king is to reign supreme over this world and fill it with his goodness once again. We're objects of God's wrath because we're in rebellion, because we're bent towards sin, because we knowingly and willingly transgress God's good laws. And yet, because God is so rich in mercy, says Paul, we don't get what our sins deserve. We don't automatically receive death and eternal separation from God the moment we choose to rebel. Instead, God has embarked on an incredibly long-suffering journey to enter into this world and to give us new and eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved, that any of us can be saved, says Paul. Instead of giving us what our sins deserve, God put them On to sinless Jesus. On the cross at Calvary, Jesus became a sin offering to God, his perfect, pure blood. And our faith in him brings us forgiveness and a clean conscience. A new start and a new life that is a complete gift from God. Nothing we could do to earn it. 
to pay it back, to become worthy of it. It's an otherworldly righteousness that we couldn't supply gifted to us. A relationship we couldn't patch up given back to us. A gift of love and a gift of mercy from start to finish. This is what God is like. While we're stuck, while we're hard and rebellious, while we are arrogant and boastful, while we're dead to Him and deserving of His wrath, He comes to us in loving kindness, offers Himself up to death for us, and then lavishes that kindness on us. This is why Paul says God's grace is incomparable. There's just no human experience that we can compare to this. Never in our lives have we been so up a creek, so bankrupt, so separated, so dead, only to be given gifts, undeserved mercy and gifts like the grace and the love that God preemptively lavishes on us through Jesus. So full is this grace, and so certain is this grace, that Paul testifies, God has raised us up with Christ Jesus, and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, our faith, unites us to Jesus in such a sure and certain way that we are right now joined to Jesus as he rules over this world from a throne in heaven. This may seem mystical and even hard to believe, but it's true. And it gets even better. Not only do we do we have such a certain certainty about being joined to or belonging to to Jesus, but God also now has renewed purpose for each one of us. We're his workmanship, says Paul, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for each of us to do. In other words, he says, rather than now working against God, we're, we're actually working with him. We're on his team. We're, we're co-laboring with him. God, God is working with and through us. Where we once lived for our pleasure, now we get to work to bring other people to know and to love God. We get to watch Jesus heal and restore people as they trust and obey Him. It's messy work and it's hard work because we're fighting a spiritual battle against the kingdom of darkness, but it's also sweet work because we're sharing in the joy and the love of the one who's rescued us, and the one who will finally bring his rescue of this world to completion. Paul references this coming day of God setting all things right, and of judgment, as he writes about, quote, a coming age in which God demonstrates the riches of his kindness to us. God is right now healing and restoring one person at a time. But when Jesus returns, there will be a setting right of all things, a healing of all hurts, and a removal 
of all that is evil. The day of Jesus' return will be a day when the rightful king of this world brings his kingdom with all its goodness in all its fullness, and he is worshipped as he deserves all across the earth. When the will of God comes on the earth as it is in heaven, when all see the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Jesus and worship him, as Lord. It will be a day of vindication for the righteous, but it will also be a day of wrath and of judgment for those who refuse to acknowledge and love the truth, those who refuse God's grace and persist in evil. And because there's a day of wrath coming, the message is both joyful and sober. It calls for repentance and humility and right response to God's grace. And so I wonder, where do you stand in relationship to God and His grace right now? Have you acknowledged fully your rebellion? Have you acknowledged all of the ways that you've lived to gratify the cravings of your sinful nature? Have you recognized that your sins make you deserving of God's wrath? And have you experienced God's kindness to you in Christ Jesus? Have you welcomed God's grace? Receiving Jesus by faith as your Savior and Lord? Have you experienced the fullness of the freedom that stems from knowing you did nothing to deserve or earn the favor God freely gives? Have you responded with joyful trust and humble submission to Jesus Christ, who is King and Lord? This, my friends, is the good news of the kingdom of God, as Paul explains it in Ephesians 2. I've just shared it with you in about 15 minutes. I'd share it in different words if I was sharing with an unbeliever, and probably a little different with a new believer. But the point is that I was able to share it from Ephesians 2 very easily, because I spent a lot of time studying the gospel story, rehearsing the gospel story, and preparing to share the gospel story. When Anne and I returned from China in 2009, we were told, in order to not be overwhelmed by the question, how was China, you ought to prepare a 30 to 60 second answer and a 5 to 15 minute answer that can flex, given whatever the situation is. Well, I've just given you my version of Paul's 15 minute answer to the question, what's the good news of the kingdom of God? But if I were to share a 30 to 60 second version, I might use the visual gospel tool to help me do so. The visual gospel tool is the blue image of a river with seven symbols above it that you see on the at-home liturgy or the place where you clicked uh, to, to listen to this sermon. 
and it's also on the front of the discipleship binders. These seven symbols are meant to be a way that we can learn to share the gospel story in a way that's memorable for us. The first throne represents God as sovereign king, creating all things good and deserving our allegiance. The second symbol, a splotch mark, represents rebellion and sin, spoiling shalom, or God's perfect peace, where all things are well. The third symbol, a star, represents God's many promises of a savior and of a renewed heaven and earth. The fourth symbol, a cross, is the place where salvation is accomplished and death and evil defeated. The fifth symbol, a dove, signals God's incredible gift of his indwelling spirit. The sixth symbol, the plant, represents new life that the spirit's bringing not only in us, but on the earth through the church. And finally, the seventh symbol, the second crown on top of scales, signals the coming judgment and renewal of all things. The gospel in seven images. I've been working with these images for less than a month, and already they're etched into my memory. I can just picture them uh, above that little river. So hopefully they'll be equally helpful to each of you as we seek to grow in being able to share the gospel without seizing up, but rather with joy and freedom and with great effectiveness. And so let's close now by praying for an increase in these things, thanking God for the gospel, and then let's celebrate the gospel joyfully as we participate in communion together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you for the incomparable riches of your grace. We just acknowledge afresh that we are sinners. There is nothing that we deserved but wrath and that you are merciful and kind and loving and gracious and you have come to us you have provided for our rescue. You have offered yourself, Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. And we just receive you. We, we, we bless you for your humble, selfless, generous love. And we receive you and that love afresh this morning. And Father, we pray you just would wash over our hearts and our minds in whatever places we need to be refreshed by your love as we perhaps are, refresh, are, are, are um, acknowledging sins that we've not acknowledged before, maybe some of us are acknowledging rebellion or ways we've tried to gratify our sinful nature, and, um, and we pray, Holy Spirit, wash over us now, cleanse our consciences, fill us afresh with the grace of God, and, and enable and equip us to share this good news, the, the story of a good, good king who does not let his world go to ruin, but rescues it, rescues it himself, and will will set it right one day, fully right, and help us to warn people, help us to call them with love, but help us also to warn them. And we just pray that as a church, we would not be ashamed of the gospel. Like Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let us not be ashamed, but fill us with power and courage and boldness and joy as we share who you are and what you've done and call people to you, Lord. We love you. Amen.